Hello and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show all about workers' rights and social justice. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcasts to you all around the country on Community Radio Network. I'm Dennis Rogatik. Last Friday, April 24th, trade unionists and community activists gathered at sites throughout the country to commemorate the second anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster at the Gammons factory complex in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Organized by the Australia-Bangladesh Solidarity Network and a range of trade unions such as the National Tertiary Education Union and Textile, Clothing and Footwear Union, they paid a tribute to thousands of workers who lost their lives on the day of the building collapse. They also vowed to support the efforts to bring justice to the victims and their families. For those listeners who are not aware of Rana Plaza or its significance, it is considered to be the largest single case of industrial manslaughter in the garments industry throughout the world. Located in the Savar district of Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, the complex was owned by Sohel Rana and manufactured clothing and apparel for a wide range of companies, including Walmart, Joffresh, Benetton and many others. On April 24th, 8.57 a.m. local time, the Gaon factory complex collapsed. It is believed that 3,122 workers were inside the factory complex at the time of the disaster. On the day before the incident took place, the building started to show cracks and other forms of structural instability. After a short time of evacuation, the factory workers were ordered to return back to their workplaces at the plaza, or have their monthly pay package being taken from them. This fact, coupled with the overall lack of majority of forms of health and safety on the ground, is what has led many to consider the disaster as a case of murder on mass scale, rather than an industrial accident caused by negligence. The news and shock of the incident spread like wildfire throughout the world, bringing to light the atrocious conditions that the Bangladeshi government workers, majority of whom being women, face on a daily basis in their workplaces. But with tragedy and death, there also comes hope and solidarity, and the efforts of the survivors, their families, and the mass groups of government workers to organize and resist. This will be the main topic of our program today. We are now joined by Jerem Small, a rank and file member of the CFMEU Construction in general, and the industrial organizer for Social Alternative, as well as Samir Khatum, the postdoc at the Department of History at the University of Melbourne, and the rank and file member of the National Tertiary Education Union. Uh, welcome, comrades, to the 3CR Stick to the Show today. Oh, hello. Hi, Dennis. That's oh, great to have you with us. Um, now, I thought we, I thought we'd, uh, we'd start with a, a question for Samir. Um, now, uh, Samir, you were in Dhaka during the Rana Plaza uh, collapse. Yes. Could you uh, could you d- uh, briefly describe the scene uh, of th- of the tragedy, th- if that's right? Um, well, the factory collapsed. Um, it was an eight hour, eight um, story factory that collapsed, and you know it was on the news um, fairly quickly, and lots of people from various different walks of life sort of rushed to the site and got involved in the rescue missions. Um, one of the things I remember 
uh, that was very striking was that it was just ordinary people who jumped in. It was rickshaw drivers and ordinary workers and students and just people, everyday people who just sort of put their own lives at peril and jumped into the rubble and started pulling out bodies and, you know, the relatives um, were just gathered around the building and holding up photos. Very quickly you had a, you know, very large number of people looking for their own relatives through mm-hmm. through the rubble and uh, the, the Quran was being blasted over um, the loudspeakers um, adjacent to the building and it just, you know, it just went for days and days and days and days of um, rescue and um, fairly quickly it became obvious that um, that the blame was going to be shifted from one party to another. So there was groups of people who um, got involved in photographing the bodies, making sure that one body goes in one body bag so that bodies aren't undercounted. Um, yeah, so it was just kind of mayhem on the ground, uh, but but kind of a response across all different levels of the, of the society in, in Bangladesh um, to, to this horrific incident. So, yeah. So even sort of in place of tragedy, you still see these sort of examples of you know, human and the workers solidarity. Yeah, yeah, and and one of the most striking things I remember is the rickshawalas um, who were sort of <laughs> pulling out body after body, and they were saying, "Well, if these are these are our people, these are our brothers and sisters, you know, if we don't do it, no one else will." And you know, usually groups who are very antagonistic towards each other, the Islamists and the secularists in Bangladesh, they were just. Both in both sets of people were in there, side by side, pulling out bodies, which um, just really uh, captured something about global capitalism at this mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, mm, of course, yeah. And um, both yourself, Sami, and yourself, Jerome, have have also been on a um, a solidarity brigade to uh, Bangladesh that was organised by the uh, Australia Asia Workers Links uh, this year. I believe. Yep. Was it? Uh, it was uh, late last year. Oh, late last late last year. Apologies. And uh, now, from the reports that we've seen, is that it's, uh, it has been evident on the ground that there's been really no inconscious effort by either the company or the government to uncover th- uncover the rabble and retrieve the the remains of the of the workers. Is that something that, that you observed while you were there? Sorry, uh, yeah, um, yeah. yeah my, my understanding. I'm sure Samir could report firsthand. Um, the it's not just that there was no systematic effort made to recover the bodies. There was a systematic effort made by the authorities to cover up the death toll. So Samir just referred to the practice of the authorities trying to shove, you know, more than one worker's body into a body bag. And that effort to cover up the death toll and minimise the damage to all of the global brands that profited so much from, um, uh, you know, from these workers' labour, um, that effort continues to this day. Uh, when we visited the scene of Rana Plaza, um, the uh, president of uh, uh, one of the Rana Plaza survivors' unions um, and one of the activists that, that we were with, Masum, talked about places where they had found human remains just in the last few months um, and the authorities had basically chased them off and had seized those remains. Um, so still to this day, the site... Um, you know, there are still skulls and fragments of bone being found. Um, and, yeah, the response of the authorities is not to uh, recover these remains, but rather to 
cover them up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought we'd actually briefly um, talk about the uh, the current state of the garment industry in Dhaka. Now, everywhere in the world, uh, we hear about you know the race to the bottom. Well, in many in many ways, uh, Bangladesh is considered to be this uh, the bottom. Yeah. Now, while um, during uh, during your time on the on the brigades, um, were you were you able to see a sort of any signs um, that, that could suggest otherwise? You know, perhaps any you know any 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 good signs of uh, uh, perhaps coming from the cooperative movements in the garments industry or among the uh, or anywhere else. So, Mia, do you want to have a go at that? Or yeah, um, look, this idea that Bangladesh is the bottom. Um, Firstly, that's actually something that's a little bit kind of offensive Mm. to anyone who's Bangladeshi. Like, you Mm. don't... The... It's... You know, global capitalism and imperialism has produced these incredible inequalities and it... I don't know, like, I... I, There's something in me that kind of dies a little every time I hear that phrase Mm. race to the bottom because it, it... it's just, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of just perpetuates something about how the world sees Bangladesh. The thing mm. is that the garments industry being in Bangladesh has completely transformed the lives of, you know, countless women who are working in this industry who prior to that were either in domestic service and mm. or were working in villages or working in agricultural sectors and so it's it's actually one of these things that's totally transformed the gender landscape of Bangladesh and what it means to be a working class woman and so from mm-hmm. I, I see as incredible potential that the fact that these people are actually working in a collective space where they can organize and where they can start actually wielding some power over their lives um, mm-hmm. but I guess on our delegation what we saw is that time and time again, the places where people are trying to organise, the places where people are trying to rest, you know, rest their dignity away from that identification with the bottom, again and again, the employers, um, both in Bangladesh, the garment um, factory owners in Bangladesh, as well as the global brands internationally, are keeping them at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just very, it, it's, um, it was a very disheartening, at the same time as quite inspiring trip, I think, for all of us, because we saw just how much potential there was. Um, but then on the other hand, we also saw all the measures that powerful people are taking to make sure that it remain, they remain at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, Asmir, could you go into a little bit more detail uh, about the efforts on the ground among the, among the, um, uh, the female workers in, of, the, of the garment industry to organize themselves uh, together perhaps on, on, on the shop floor, but also against, you know, sort of th- this double discrimination they would face? Um, well, it's basically the way that the um, law in Bangladesh works currently. In order to be a registered union, you have it's factory by factory, and there's a certain percentage of a factory that has to join a union in order for it to be registered. So... If you're organising in any other capacity, um, you're considered an illegal, um, 
you know, you're an illegal organisation and not a union, and then the police can be brought in to shut down anything that you're doing. So the problems with that is that um, as soon as uh, union organisers or people who are gathering people together for union activity get 30% of a factory listed on, you know, a sheet of members, that has to be then given to the employer. And you can imagine <laughs> as soon as that's given to the garment factory owner, that person just goes and fires them all or intimidates them into not being part of the organising activity. So in some ways, the the current way that the entire um, union organising in Bangladesh works, the legal system is completely in favour of factory owners. And this has been done systematically um, since 1971. It, it's all sorts of different restructuring of how unions are allowed to operate in Bangladesh that have changed quite dramatically in the last 30 years because the textile industry um, in Bangladesh has a very long history. There have been moments where unions have been very effective. So we saw some of that in operation, I guess. Um, the the unions who were actually trying to do very pro-worker things that weren't in close alliance with the owner of the factory were basically operating underground and not able to operate through the uh, legal mechanisms because the only people who can operate through legal mechanisms are the ones who have the um, owners on their side. Um, so yeah, that that was one very main main thing we saw. What, how about you, Jerome? What what stuck out for you? Well, I mean, this was my first time in Bangladesh and I was around Dhaka for a week, so I'm far from an, an expert, but um, I was um, really impressed with a, a, a bunch of things. Um, excuse me. One was, um, and you find this in a lot of the literature as well, but just um, uh, workers, women workers, standing up for each other on the shop floor, not letting um uh, you know, people be isolated, not letting people be bullied, surrounding bullying managers, forcing bullying managers to apologise. Sometimes, uh, uh, you know, managing to force a bullying manager to be to be sacked uh, by their employer. Um, so there's that just everyday level of resistance that happens on the shop floor, um, which um, you know is never going to be found in the strike statistics or anything like that. Um, but that goes on on a daily basis, and that's you know it's hard to measure, obviously. Um, then I thought, you know, obviously, Samir outlined that the huge obstacles to actually getting a legal, stable union in Bangladesh um, uh, from, and this means that the whole scene looks very different to Australia, where we're used to these legal, stable unions, which, you know, some are better, some are not so great, whatever, but at least they have some capacity to organise. This is very, very difficult, um, if not impossible, to achieve in Bangladesh. So the struggle tends to as far as I could work out, take other forms that the left unions that Samia referred to. Um, you know, like it was such a privilege to meet some of these, um, uh, you know, worker organisers who would go into a factory and, um, you know, start a committee or go into an area um, and start a committee to organise in a particular factory. Um, and it seemed to me that a lot of them had sort of given up on the idea that you would achieve a registered union but mm. that doesn't mean that you can't work inside that factory to organize workers and to apply industrial pressure to the boss um, which they were certainly doing and on some occasions that sort of organization um, has led to nationwide uh, well industry-wide uprisings mm. of garment workers um, so we heard about 
uh, you know, from participants in the uprisings in 2006. Uh, there was another, you know, again, looking at the literature, there was another massive outbreak of struggle in 2008. And, and these achieved real gains for workers um, in terms of uh, maternity leave, in terms of identity cards being issued, in terms of medical facilities, um, you know, not in every single factory, but in a lot of factories, uh, having a day off a week, uh, you know, became more normal after these uprisings. Um, again, according to what people were saying and according to the... the um, Literature, the literature that you can look at online. And then, of course, in 2013, immediately after Rana Plaza, and then again later in the year, a massive upsurge of struggle. Um, and the accounts of that um, are extremely dramatic. You know, garment workers marching in their thousands, calling their fellow workers out, shutting down entire industrial zones, uh, blocking highways, and forcing the government to grant uh, substantial increases in the minimum wage. Mm. Um, now, of course, the second that that increase flows through, um, you know, the workers find that their rent goes up, the price of food goes up, so they're not left with uh, much of a gain at all in their pocket. And they also find that um, the employers are, you know, desperately trying to ramp up the pace of production so that they can, you know, keep their uh, position with the global brands. Um, you know, this deadly race um, you know, to stay competitive, continue. So, you know, I guess that's the nature of the struggle. As soon as you win something, then the, the bosses will try to grab it back. But um, really, you know, I found it both an education and an inspiration um, meeting these workers um, and their capacity to organise despite the incredible obstacles that they face. Absolutely. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio Network. We are continuing our discussion of the consequences of the Rana Plaza factory collapse, the campaigns to organize the government's workers on the ground and the international government industry in general. But and what about uh, any, any of the efforts to form Permanent, permanent and ongoing campaigns uh, among the families and among the survivors of the um, of the Rena Plaza disaster specifically, particularly, particularly with regards to you know compensation and justice for you know uh, for the, for the tragedy. Samir, do you want to comment on it? Sure. Um, look, what's happened in the aftermath of Rana Plaza is there's almost something like a compensation industry that has sort of sprung up because there was quite a lot of international um, media and international um, sort of attention to Rana Plaza and lo- apparently lots of money did flow in. But the, again and again, the, the three times I've been to Bangladesh since Rana Plaza, the, the third one being with this delegation of Australian um, unionists um it it's very clear that people haven't gotten any compensation people haven't people have gotten small bits of money that's sort of almost working as shut up money um but compensation and significant ways of actually supporting people who have lost their limbs it just hasn't happened so one of the most exciting things that we saw when we were in Dhaka last was um a, a cooperative called New Life who had um, it's basically a, co- a workers co-op 
that was set up by survivors of Rana Plaza and they they've started um, a new garment factory and one of the things that, that really struck me was that their garment factory is on the ground floor. They will, These are workers who will no longer go into buildings. They will no longer work um, in anything that's higher than first floor because you can imagine the kind of sort of psychological effect of being in a collapse like that has had on them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are people who equally own the factory and any worker can work there, but it can only be owned by people who were uh, survivors of Rana Plaza. And we've been with the, we launched the Australia Bangladesh Solidarity Network um, recently in order to continue being able to support, continue supporting these types of initiatives. And we're trying to see how we can, um, you know, get international orders for this workers' co-op. At the moment, their main market is the Bangladeshi market, but we're absolutely certain that when um, an international community hear about these kinds of initiatives, they'll be very, very, very keen to sort of nurture and support these types of things that have come from the ground up. Um, so that that was um, that was one of the interesting things we saw on the ground. Mm-hmm. Excellent. No, it's that's you know, it's great. It's great to hear this initiative coming from. Um also, just uh, briefly before we go on, uh, now, and Rana Plaza itself has certainly it's certainly been the most prominent example of the industrial manslaughter taking place in Bangladesh, but there has certainly been a series of similar uh, incidents uh, in the past. Uh, could, you t- uh, could you mention us, t- tell us about some of those? Well, the most um, obvious is the Dazreen factory fire, which happened only five months, I think, prior to Rana Plaza, and there was over 500 people killed. Jerome, do you... I think it's one of those ones, the, the official toll is 112. A, a lot of people say it's much higher than that. Um, I think even the semi-official figure is about 30 or 40 higher than that. But again, there's been very substantial efforts to cover up the death toll, so I don't think that we actually know the proper figure. Way, way, way more than 100. I mean, we, we got to visit that site as well, um, which was, um, well, it was, yeah, it was very uh, interesting for me to... Um, a lot of the families of... Uh, a lot of the former workers and families of uh, workers are, are actually still living around the Tazreen um, fire because the uh, around the burnt-out... Um, shell of the Tazran building um, because uh, it's in the nature of the industry. A lot of people come in from the countryside to work in the the, uh, the industry. They know that if they go back to the village that they came from, no one's going to find them. No one's going to come and track them down and offer them compensation if any compensation comes through. No one's going to offer them a chance to be part of a legal case or any other form of justice if they go. So um, in smaller numbers now, but there, there are still a number of people you know, living around that factory uh, for that reason. Um, and the account that they gave is, I mean, it's something, if anyone knows the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York in 1911, um, the, which uh, my understanding is the most, that's the most catastrophic disaster in the history of the, the US garments industry, it, it's exactly the same. You know, a pretty much the overwhelming majority of the workers are women. Um, the fire, the doors are kept locked to the factory. Um, the factory owners say to keep uh, thugs out. Uh, the workers often say to keep union organisers out. Um, so when a fire starts, um, there's simply no way to escape. This is made worse in the case of Tazreen because the, according to all accounts, including the one that we got, uh, supervisors were going around saying, there's nothing to worry about. Don't worry about the fire alarm. It's just a drill. You can keep working. So by the time workers started to evacuate themselves, they simply uh, 
had no option to escape, especially because one of the fire doors was locked and the other one was blocked by the fire. Um, so talking about this, it's very... Uh, one of the things I found difficult talking and writing about this is it's very easy to make the Bangladesh garment manufacturers the main villain of the piece. And I, I, I just don't think they are. I think the biggest villains are the one, ones who count the biggest profits with the cleanest hands. And they are all very far from Rana Plaza. They're all very far from Tazreen. Mm-hmm. Um these are the people that run the companies that know full well what's happening to produce the garments that they profit from, um, and they just keep it going because there's so much profit involved. So that's that's Walmart, that's Benetton, that's you know basically all of the global brands. That's brands that and companies that operate here in this town um, um, and in this country. Um, the Targets, the Best and Less, uh, Woolworths, you know, all of these companies produce in conditions where uh, workers are just systematically denied their rights. Um, and I'm not part of Australia-Bangladesh Solidarity Network, but I was just enormously encouraged to see um, the initiatives that they were uh, trying to develop with uh, Bangladesh counterparts to hold Australian companies to account for the conditions in which um, their garments are produced. Um, and I'm just really looking forward to seeing those uh, solidarity initiatives keep developing. Mm. No, absolutely. And uh, just, to, just to finish off um, uh, our episode today, or what what exact campaigns uh, we um, have uh, the the Bangladesh Solidarity Network here has been uh, uh, developing, and uh, who should uh, our listeners to speak to to get involved? Um, there's a we've got a website that's up now. The Australia Bangladesh Solidarity Network can be seen at www.absn.org.au. Um, very recently, we launched the Australia Bangladesh Solidarity Network uh, through a photographic exhibition from Taka. It was a photographic exhibition about Rana Plaza um, and it was, it, so there's, there's sort of lots of things have come out of that and there's a, um, lots of momentum at the moment trying to link across the commodity chain. So we're trying to build a network that um, like recently there was a, um, a boiler that ruptured at Shanto Express, um, which is a, a factory in Bangladesh, and we were able to, through our networks, work out that that was actually a Target factory that was su- supplying um, Target clothes, and hence we were able to, we are now able to campaign at Target and actually join those dots across the commodity chain. So that, that's the, those are the kinds of campaigns and things currently going up that are being organised through ABSN and uh, we'd encourage all listeners to go and check out, donate, but most invo- most importantly, get involved. Um, okay, fantastic. And if I can throw in two other websites, yep. Australia Asia Worker Links, which is also part of the Solidarity um, uh, Delegation, so if you Google them, um, that they have a lot of information and links to uh, global campaigns around garments and also workers' struggles uh, in Bangladesh and throughout the region. Um, and I've just, um, like after yeah, a few months, managed to put something in writing, uh, my impressions of the trip, so people can find that on the Red Flag uh, newspaper website, um, which is redflag.org.au. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much to both uh, you, Jerem, and to you, Samir, for oh, you, joining David. us on uh, 3CR uh, this, um, uh, today and commemorating the, um, the Rene Plaza uh, disaster. Thank you, Dennis. And cheers, thank Samir. you very much. Yeah. We would like to remind our listeners of the upcoming rally on May the 1st at Double Town Hall at 4pm in defense of the remote Aboriginal communities. And don't forget about the upcoming May Day rally on Sunday, May the 3rd, 
a trades hall at 1pm. Well, that will be all for Stick Together this week. I'm Dennis Rogachuk, and I'd like to once again thank both uh, Jerem and Samir for appearing on the program today. Thanks to the Community Broadcasting Federation for its financial support of the program. Once again, thank you for listening to today's episode, and we hope you tune in same time next week. <laughs>